And I know that's sort of like a pithy answer, but it's the truth. Our thoughts shape our reality. This is a very fundamental idea and concept from many, 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 many philosophers across the millennia. We shape the circumstances in our lives just by the way that we look at them. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today works with executives and entrepreneurs to teach them ideas and concepts from the greatest thinkers of all time, so that they can cultivate their minds, manage with calmness, navigate obstacles, and lead the way forward. She's combined a 20-year career as a rank-and-file executive and a master's degree in organizational change management and over 10 years of study in practical philosophy to become a driving force behind the idea that you can have great experience at work by being wiser. Today, she's here to walk us down a threefold path of awareness, action, and wisdom that will help us develop our own philosophical practice so that we can apply discipline and rigor to our thoughts and actions that we can serve and achieve more. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the world's first industrial philosopher, Christina DiGiacomo. Christina, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. I am so excited to be here, Harpreet. Thank me you too, for having bro. me on. I'm so, yeah, so happy chat. to have you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I came across you when, I think I saw you comment on like Ryan Holiday's post or something on LinkedIn. And then I clicked I clicked on your, your profile and I was like, oh, wow, she's written a book. That's really cool. Industrial philosophy. That sounds so awesome. So I immediately knew I had to reach out to you, get you on the show, because I, I love philosophy as well. And I love talking about it. So I'm really excited to uh, to have you here. But before we get into all of that, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yeah. So, well, first I was born in Milan, Italy. And so I was five years old when we came to the States and I grew up in the Hudson Valley, which is about an hour and a half north of New York City. But I still have memories of Milan and my family lived there for about 17 years, but English wasn't my first language. And I loved upstate New York, just lots of nature. It was really just, it was amazing. So yeah. That's really cool, man. So that, that DJ Como, it's like the, the proper yeah. Italian. That's so cool. Exactly. You did, you got the hand gestures down <laughs> and everything, everybody, he did the, he did the Paisan, like, yeah. you know, fingers pinched gesture that, you know, is the universal gesture of Italianness. So, so do you still speak any, any Italian or, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. I, well, so the interesting thing is when, when we moved here, uh, my parents wanted me to get into an American school right away. 
So they sat me in front of the television, Sesame Street, the electric company, you know, the kids shows. And that's how I learned English. Problem was, is I forgot all of my Italian because my parents didn't speak Italian at home. That's how they wanted me to be integrated as quickly as possible. So I've been back to Italy and my Italian comes back when I'm in Italy, but, and I can speak very simply. Yeah. That's kind of similar to me with my Punjabi. It's very, very simply spoken, but it's interesting because there's a huge community of Punjabi people in uh, Italy. And one of my wife's cousins, uh, their family moved here to Winnipeg recently after like, they were born and raised all in all in Italy. And I've, I've got cousins myself who are in Italy. I think they're in Parma, I believe that's where they're at. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's cool to to hear that you kind of have a, I mean, not kind of, you definitely do have that immigrant experience. What was that like growing up? Well, when I first started school, it was very hard to make friends because I didn't know how to speak. Like I knew how to, I, I mean, I could speak some English, but it wasn't super conversational. And so I remember just feeling like I spent by myself, you know, but then eventually, like once I got, I, I, once I got over the language barrier, that was fine. And, and I think for me, really, I miss being connected to my culture through language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really do. I'm, I'm connected in other ways, like food. <laughs> but but there's something about the Italian language is just so beautiful. And I, I just wish I it was more of a part of my life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm definitely connected to the Italian culture through the food as well. That's like one of my favorite things to eat. So so talk to us about when you're when you're in high school, what did you think your life would look like? So I really didn't have an idea. I was very much around graduating. I was very in the, I guess you could say sort of in the moment, but maybe only five feet, like being able to see five feet ahead of me. It was very much like, okay, ace these classes, you know, graduate, survive high school, basically. Like, I I mean, really, that's what it, that's what it was. Cause I was a super nerd. And it was like, I just want to survive high school. And then the next step was like, I just want to get into college. I actually don't care where I go. I didn't care where I where I went. I was pretty much left up to my own devices. And so for me, it was just like, I will go to whatever decent school accepts me. And so that was like the next five feet. Then it was, all right, let me survive college. <laughs> and then I graduate from college and it's like, all right, what's the next five feet? So I had no idea. I really had no idea where my life was, what my life was going to be like. And one of those five foot steps brought you into the world of being a DJ during the early 2000s, right? So talk to us about that experience. How did you get into the DJ world? So I was always had musicality. I, you know, played the piano when I was a kid, but I couldn't read sheet music. So I could only play by ear. And I always loved music. I was like one of the first kids in my high school who was listening to hip hop, who was listening to techno, you know, and I actually really loved classical music and classic rock. I mean, I I was very, my range in terms of musical taste was very broad and electronic, like Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream. So, you know, as I got older, well, what happened was I was living in New York City for about three years and I had an appointment 
I had never been to the World Trade Center before. I, I had been in the city for three years, had not been to the World Trade Center, and I had an appointment on guess what day? Oh. September 11th. 2001. Wow. I had a meeting on the 75th floor of World Trade Center one of all the um, the, the day of all days, wow. the day of all days, first time. And I was running late for my meeting and it was all good. It was like I was the client, you know, wasn't I was the client. So it wasn't a big deal that I was like running a few minutes late. And it, it turned out to be an absolute blessing because I was on the subway and I was in the subway and they stopped the subway and they evacuated the subway. And, you know, it was very confusing. And my office was two stops in the other direction. So here I am, I go, I'm like, okay, I'll just go back to the office. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. And I walk out of the subway station and I'm look, look up and the towers are burning. And I'm standing there and it was like, I saw in real time, one of the towers collapse. And you just don't understand what you can, your mind can't comprehend when something like there, it's when you're seeing something like that. So it was hard for me to process. And it took me a little while to realize, like, I got a second chance because the people that I was supposed to meet. Thankfully, they made it out alive, but they had to walk down 75 flights and barely made it out. And they saw really horrific things. You know, they basically their companies gave them a leave of absence for like six months because they just were so traumatized. And I realized I got a second chance and I thought to myself, what do I want to do? What is like the one thing that I really, really would love to do? And I, I realized I had been going to raves and going and seeing DJs since I was like 13 years old. And now I'm like in my mid twenties and I'm going to learn how to DJ. So I scraped together whatever money I had and I got myself two used turntables, which I still have. Actually, what you're seeing right here is my DJ booth nice. right behind me. And I still have those turntables and I, I taught myself how to DJ. And so in the early 2000s to the mid 2000s, I played some, I played underground house parties in the city and a couple of really well-known clubs. And yes. that was, yeah, that was how I basically, it's kind of like how I took advantage of a second chance. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. That is an insane story. I'm glad you were safe and I'm glad you used that opportunity to do something creative and, and, and kind of a positive thing that came out of a negative experience in a way. But I read this, this article that you'd written and you talked about how being a DJ has taught you grit, focus, and presence. So talk to us about that. How did being a DJ teach you these qualities? So with DJing, you have to be very comfortable with the idea that something will go wrong. That's it. Something's going to go wrong. The gear is going to fail. The sound system is going to fail. The promoter may be a jerk. No one may show up. Like it, it's, you know, I, in the 10 years or so that I was a DJ, I think I remember once when everything just went great. <laughs> so what that does to you is it gives you a, a sense of resilience not in the sense, it's not like oh, something's going to go wrong in sort of a fear based kind of way. It's just like, okay, something's going to go wrong. I've figured out how to fix it in the past. Things happen. 
And you just, you, you be, become, you have grit because of it. Uh, as far as focus is concerned, there are a gazillion things that are going on. See, DJs make it look so easy because they want to look super cool. But let me tell you, there are things that are going on that you cannot even imagine, right? So you've got all this gear, really technical. So you got to keep an eye on that. You got to keep an eye on the musicality. You got to keep an eye on and and be tuned into the floor and the crowd and the mood. You got to mood match everything. Then you've got some drunk person thinking that they can make requests and they're like bugging you. You know, the promoter, you see the promoter at the door, you know, doing the count of like how many people are coming in. And all the time, all this time, you have to be so completely focused on the music and making sure that you do not miss a beat because the second you miss a beat match or, or miss a cue or you haven't equalized properly, man, that gets so magnified through the speaker system and everybody can hear it. So the focus that that a really like a, a good DJ has to have in order to do their thing. And you have to be super excited and look happy while you're doing all of this. So the level of focus really, it really sharpened me. And then finally, with regards to presence, I, I learned very early on that it wasn't about me. I learned very early on that my role had nothing to do with wanting to be, a, I wanted to be a good DJ because being a good DJ meant that I helped someone get through a bad day. You know, my job was to, you know, someone lost their job that day or someone broke up with their partner or lost a loved one or was just having a really bad, you know, series of events. My job was to make them forget about all of that, even for just a second and, and, and bring happiness to them. And so to me, that's what presence is. Presence has nothing to do with me. It has to do with being super completely 100% connected to the heart of the person that's standing in front of you. That's what presence is. And that's what DJing taught me. Absolutely love that. That is so cool. So were you always kind of a philosophical person or was this something that, you know, DJing got you more into philosophy? How, how did this work? How did you get into, into philosophy? I believe that I was always philosophical. Even when I was young, I felt really connected to everything. I mean, I remember the moment where I was aware of my existence, you know, and I was eight years old and we had woods behind our house and I went out in, into the woods, not too far, but I was always a very outdoorsy woodsy kid. And I'm looking out I'm in, in the woods and I felt so connected to everything and I felt so aware and I was like, I, I felt my existence. And there were other, I was like that. And I think that DJing and even to some extent, the career that I had, because I, I was always very interested in strategy in my career, were, were I think my ways of trying to operate in the world on a philosophical level and not realizing that I was actually philosophical and, and not actually understanding that there was a whole like body of work that I, that I wasn't aware of or really tapping into, but I was very philosophical in my experiences in life and, and how I reflected on those experiences. So why is it that philosophy 
and wisdom, they get lumped into these categories of being like woo woo or, or, or out there. Why do you think that is? I wish I had an answer. Honestly, I really do. And if I were to answer, I, I feel like it would come out as disparaging to other people and I or critical of other people. And I don't want to do that. Um, all I can say is uh, all I know is that that's kind of the reaction that I encounter sometimes from other people who are curious about who are curious about philosophy and may not have been exposed to it a lot and have these preconceived notions. So I have heard that sort of, isn't that just kind of like woo woo, new agey stuff or whatever, but I don't know why. Yeah. It's interesting. Like new agey stuff. It's, this is wisdom that's been around for like thousands and thousands of years, but how do you define philosophy? I define philosophy as a, a protocol for engaging with the world. I like that. It's just a way of life, right? It's a way to live your life, protocol to live your life. I absolutely love that. And you've done something unique. So you've taken philosophy, applied it to the industrial world and kind of created this unique intersection that you call industrial philosophy. Talk to us about, first of all, what is industrial philosophy and, and how did, what was the genesis of this? So philosophy is a protocol for engaging with the world and industrial philosophy is using philosophy to engage with the working world. And it's really born out of three things. First, my background and education in organizational change management. So really understanding how organizations work, how they function, and what the processes and principles are of creating a great organization. The second uh, aspect is my own experiences as a manager, as an executive, you know, as an employee within organizational life, you know, for 20 years. So not as a consultant, not as an academic, but like real, like, you know, I'm going to this status meeting and I'm about to have a panic attack, real experience, right? So that's sort of the third pillar of, industri of industrial philosophy is understanding what the real experiences are for people in the working world. And then the third is philosophy. And the, this it, it, third, but certainly not last, because when I started studying practical philosophy 10 years ago, I was using what I was learning to help me cope with the challenges that I was facing at work. And so when I decided to pursue something related to philosophy, which I'm really passionate about, but also like, hey, we are not having a good experience in our, in our work lives organizations are really struggling. And, and thinking about that, that's, that's where I came up with industrial philosophy, which is taking all this guidance from, you know, and, and whether these philosophers knew they were impacting the working world. But if you look at ideas from like Xenophon or Plato or Aristotle, like it's all wisdom and principles around leadership and, you know, all these other ideas, Lao Tzu and Emerson, like if you if you start to take a look at what they're teaching through the or through an organizational lens or through the lens of a person in the working world, it's like all this insight just opens up. And so I, I just felt it was worth creating a category called industrial philosophy that encompasses philosophy for the workplace. 
Yeah, I absolutely love it. I encourage you guys to check out check out the book Wise Up at Work. I really, really enjoyed enjoyed reading that one. So speaking of being wise, what is what is the difference between being wise and acting wise? So being wise, we are all wise. So that's a that's a first that's the first thing to understand. And and many people, many people are like full stop right there. No, uh-uh. <laughs> right. And I understand that's really challenging for for people to to wrap their heads around because they see every day people not acting wisely. So they can't believe that we are all wise. But this guidance was from Aristotle and many others. We have an innate wisdom. Now where it gets where the difference is is acting on that wisdom, which is a different it's a different modality. And so acting wise is really about removing the impediments from the innate wisdom that's in you and allowing that innate wisdom to come forth through your actions and your thoughts and your the way you operate in the world. Yeah, I absolutely love that. You you laid out this kind of I guess four aspects or a four aspect guide to to actually removing these impediments and and being more wise in the workplace. That was the clarity, thoughts, decision, and and finally wisdom. Can you can you walk us through these four things? Then we'll do a deeper dive in a couple of uh, of my favorite ones from the book. Absolutely. So the first aspect of wisdom is your perception of reality, right? And the thing is, a lot of times your perception of reality is not actually what reality really is. It's it's your perception of it. So the the first like line of defense, if you know, for lack of a better term, is really understanding what the truth really is to the best of your ability, which means removing your inner monologue about that person at work who's bugging the crap out of you and they need something from you. And, you know, like, what's the truth? They're just asking you for help. What's your perception? Oh my God, they're asking me for help again. I, there's such a pain in the A. That's perception. Where would you rather be in your alternate reality where everything's kind of crappy and this person's a burden or where the truth is, where it's just a really simple exchange of, hey, I need help. OK, let me help you. Boom. Done. Gone. You know, over. Right. So perception. What is the truth? The second aspect is managing your thoughts about what you perceive, right? So just as the example I gave you, right, we have a choice. We have a choice to manage those thoughts. And are you going to stay in that thought about that person? Or are you just going to get on with it? You know, because you're operating from truth. The third is being thoughtful and deliberate about what you're going to do. And a lot of times, you know, we we don't take that second to think, but to deliberate, like, what is the best course of action based on how I'm seeing the truth, how I'm managing my thoughts about it? What should I do? And then finally, the fourth aspect is actually action. And it's, you know, philosophy is not just about thinking, it's about acting and acting appropriately. And so all those four things, you know, the perception of the truth and the truth, managing your thoughts being deliberate and acting accordingly. Wisdom is the word for all of that. 
And it just, it, it all starts kind of with that perception piece of it, right? Because we are telling ourselves stories, right? And if the story we tell ourselves is, oh my God, this person is coming here to bother me again with the question, like what the hell, then we can change our perception of that, right? We can instead flip around and say, oh, you know what? This person views me as a very helpful resource and I should be grateful for the opportunity to share my knowledge with somebody who doesn't have the answers, whatever, right? Like you can just flip the script a little bit and it's coming from pausing at that perception instead of going with that initial reaction, right? Pause, reflect, and then kind of move forward with that. So, I mean, that's that's hard to do, man, because I mean, I've been the type of person that would just go with a knee-jerk reaction and just say stupid shit or, you know, just because it's a reaction, how do we pause? How do we, I guess, first of all, is it, is to get to wisdom, is it in that order we should take those steps? Does it start with that perception? And if it does, how do we, how do we mitigate that knee-jerk reaction? Well, you use the operative word, pause. Mm -hmm. I have a pausing practice. I pause before a meeting. I pause after a meeting. I, you know, pause several times a day. And really what it is, is just sitting quietly for a minute and that's it. No, you know, no, nothing involved, just coming to stillness and pausing because when you the pausing and the act of that is a muscle and we've trained our, you know, we've become trained for that knee jerk reaction. We have to untrain ourselves for that, from that knee jerk reaction. The antidote to that knee jerk reaction is to pause, pause before you say something, take a beat, pause before and after a meeting, pause before and after an activity. And the more that you do that, the more you're going to see things more clearly, the more you're going to recognize that, you know, maybe you should not say that thing or blurt out that thing. Maybe it's not the right time to act or it is the right time to act. And, you know, you feel more forthright. You begin to create the resets in your mind that are necessary for clear thinking when you pause repeatedly. And sometimes action could be an inaction, meaning choosing not to say anything or choosing not to react to a situation, right? So you could get irritated at work by something somebody said during a meeting. And instead of just blurting something out, making the situation work, just pause, reflect, and you don't even need to to act. That inaction can be just as powerful, right? So, exactly. So uh, digging deeper on, on that word, the, the, the clarity so talk to us about when, you, when we say, when we talk about clarity in your book, what is it that you, that you mean by that? So clarity, clarity does get bandied about a lot, but essentially it's going from your own opinion about something to the truth about that thing. It's seeing, really seeing rather than what you tell yourself. And it's pure. And so we talked a bit about pausing. What what other practices do you use to help you kind of see the truth in any, like, suppose that we are in a confrontational situation at work. Not that I always find myself in confrontational situations. That's, that's not true. I find that hard to believe <laughs> that anyone would want to have, anyone would feel confrontational towards you. Yeah, I'm I pretty just, sure. I, I, I can't see it. 
Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes just like forcing my ideas through, but anyways, uh, so, so pausing is one technique. What else do you do in, in situations where, where maybe you are trying to get to the truth, but maybe your impressions or your perceptions of the situation are kind of dragging you down a certain path? Yeah. So ha- super major mega hat tip to my man, Socrates for this, right? Because Socrates really gave us some of the most important guidance we could ever get, which is to ask a question. The Socratic method, the dialectic. I do the Socratic method on myself all the time, Harpreet, believe me, (laughs) all the time. And it does get me to clarity. It really does. And there are questions, there are all kinds of questions you can ask yourself. Is this true? What I'm thinking true. How is this situation affecting me? Is it really affecting me? And, you know, to to be, start with a question, when you begin to feel that angst or you begin to feel... Think, think to yourself, what is this teaching me right now? Because I believe that everything and everyone that's in front of you is your teacher. And so when you look at situations through that lens, you begin to see things a little bit more clearly. And so pausing, asking questions, and knowing that there's, and just being default, there is a lesson in what is happening right now for me is another is another practice that I that I do often. That's hard to do, right? Like do you encounter any struggles when you're first trying to to think in this way? I guess almost like metacognition, thinking about the way you're thinking and forcing yourself to answer these questions. Was that a bit of a challenge for you? And and how did you overcome that? Well, to me, the only challenge is thinking that it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you get over that, it's not a challenge. And I don't mean to be sort of like that. Actually, I realize that I sound like an asshole saying that. But what what I mean is the reason why it feels like a challenge is because we think it's a challenge as opposed to, hey, let me just try this out. Like, let me just keep at it. Like, let me... Try this thing out, observe, see what happens. Oh, um, I got an insight or, oh, okay. Things looked a little bit differently, but that was interesting. And we we go into it with a little bit more open-mindedness. I find post-its help too. So a lot of times I'll just put a reminder, like everyone and everything that's in front of you is your teacher. And I love notifications on my phone. I put practices in my calendar. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to remind yourself, but really the, the only thing that is difficult for people is to remember to do it. That's the, that's the difficulty. And once you and then once you forgive yourself for forgetting to do it, then you can just get, keep on with it and just go at your, you know, do it on your own way. Yeah, that's something that that I do sometimes. I'll beat myself up over not doing a practice. And then I was like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. Like, it's okay if I missed doing something. Just make sure you get it next time. Or you have the time right now. Just get it done. Just because it didn't happen at the set time you said you're going to do it doesn't mean that you can't get it done today, right? What are what are some some of these messages you have pop up uh, during during your day? Well, actually, Harper, can I just make a suggestion? Yeah, please. When you said sometimes you beat yourself up for forgetting a practice, mm-hmm. that's your practice. That's your work. That's mm-hmm. the work right there. Why are you be you know like explore that, examine that? Like where does where does the beating up come from? Because the second you're like, well, let me just get this done, or let me you know just move on to the other thing. 
whatever it was that was saying, hey, I didn't do this great the first time around, it's trying to tell you something. And so the more that you sort of move on to something else, it will come back up again. No matter no matter how much you push yourself, no matter how much you can do all the things to get it done, it's never going to sink in the way you want it to because there's something inside of you that is telling you that you're not doing it good enough. So whatever insight that you would be able to glean from a practice is going to be completely blocked because there's something else that wants you wants you to look at it. So actually, when you get into that moment where you're like, oh, damn, I didn't do the thing. Immediately, your, your response would be like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Why am I feeling that way? What is it about this, me not doing this thing that's making me feel this way right now? What is that? Because when, when we have things that come up that aren't seen or acknowledged, or at least acknowledge, hey, I didn't do that thing. That's okay. They come back with a vengeance because they haven't been seen. Yeah, damn, that's deep. That That's, that's going to give me a lot to chew on. Yeah, for me, it'd be something like, you know, like I forgot to write in the journal today. And I'll be like, oh, damn, forgot to write it. And, you know, let's quickly do the thing to get it done so I can move on to the next thing, um, just so I can check it off my my box. But I guess you're saying is go back to that feeling of when I'm talking down to myself, like, oh my God, you idiot. How could you forget to do this? This is on your list. Go back and examine that feeling. Yeah. Exactly. That's what you should be journaling about, not journaling to, I mean, think about an insight that you, because you wanted to check it off, Mm -hmm. right? You wanted to check the box. There's no insight there. Yeah. The insight is I'm just going to check. I'm going to ignore. I'm not going to acknowledge that I beat myself up because I didn't write a journal entry. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to acknowledge that. So I'm just going to do the thing to check off the box so that I can say to myself that I did that thing and move on, right? Yet the next time that you don't remember to write in your journal, you're going to beat yourself up again. But if you sit and and you're like, wow, that's interesting. It's just a journal entry. Like, why am I beating myself up about not doing my journal entry? And ask mm-hmm. the question. Ask the question, what is this trying to tell me? And then you journal about that. And when you see it, then the next time that you forget, you'd be like, oh, well, I forgot the last time and something really amazing happened. It's going to be okay. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm definitely going to. Yeah, that's that's going into the toolkit for sure. Thank you. So we're talking about like thinking and, and thinking these thoughts, right? We can be sitting still in you know, by all outwards appearances where we're completely still but it's all going round and round in circles in our heads right so kind of a meta question here what are your thoughts on constantly being in thought um if i had a thought about constantly being in thought then that would be a thought right but i do have some interesting statistic for you and i've got a calculator out so there's been a study where they determined that you have about people have about 48.6 thoughts per minute. It's almost a thought per second, right? 48.6 thoughts per minute. Now, 48.6 times 60, which is an hour, mm-hmm. 2,916 thoughts an hour times 24 in a day, 69,984 thoughts in a day. Wow. And imagine that most of those thoughts aren't true, are lies, stories, 
judgments. I mean, that is just an absolute full-on onslaught on our higher selves, on our true selves, on the reasoned mind. And so it accumulates, which is why pausing, resting, stillness, asking the questions, you know, taking a beat, examining, observing helps to minimize the accumulation of noise that comes from having close to 70,000 thoughts in a day. That's my thought about thoughts. Absolutely love that. I mean, you want to get to a point where you just, you have a calm mind, right? Where you're just not, you're just not thinking that much. I was reading a book by Guy Claxton. It was called uh, Hair, Brain, Tortoise Mind. And the sub, I guess, subtitle of that book was How Intelligence Increases When You Think Less. And I found that fascinating. And I think part of that is because like these 69 something thousand thoughts that we have, they tend to be primarily negative or even the same thoughts that we're thinking the day before and the day before and the day before. So how can we help ourselves find out when we're having those detrimental thoughts and nudge our way back into something more productive, right? Because we're just, if we have this many thoughts per hour and a lot of them are negative, we might not even notice that they're negative if that's all that we have going on, right? So how do we how do we notice that this is a Probably not something that's serving me well. I need to shift to something more positive. The only thing that I can say is when, if you feel like your life is in the, is in the crapper, chances are you, it's because you think it's in the crapper. It's because you're ruminating on the wrong things. And, and I know that's sort of like a pithy answer, but it's the truth. Our thoughts shape our reality. This is a very fundamental idea and concept from many, 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 many philosophers across the millennia. We shape the circumstances in our lives just by the way that we look at them. And so if you're feeling unhappy, if things don't feel right, if you feel like you're always swimming upstream and, and, you know, we all have adversity. We all have circumstances that we can't control. We all have bad things happen to us. And I'm not saying that we need to go into those situations or deal with those challenges, happy, happy, joy, joy. But there's a difference between dealing with things with a strong mind and a clear mind versus one that is already weak and susceptible and believes that your external circumstances shape who you are. And so I believe that when we we know when things aren't going well, that's the thing. The, the challenge is most people don't want to admit that things aren't going well. So they ignore their feelings. They ignore the the way they look at life they ignore all the negative chatter in their minds they think that's that that's the way life is that that's normal while they're having heart attacks having insomnia having stress having anxiety and and being and being really difficult to deal with for, with all the people that are trying to deal with them so, if you know that if you know that you're having negative thoughts that's half the battle mm-hmm. if you're worried like are my thoughts negative? There's nothing for you to worry about because you already care and you're already aware. You're already you already aware. You know you're already aware of it. Yeah, absolutely love that. So you're talking about in your book how how people get 
really attached to their thoughts and their ideas. And I guess, how can we avoid that? Because maybe people who are being really angry or upset or just in this constant negative chatter, they begin to identify with with that. And that's who they are to themselves, right? And they're attached to this type of thought pattern, right? And that thought, you know, for example, is to say you're just attached to listen to a particular album for the rest of your life, right? And it's the same record playing over and over and over in your head and you begin to attach to that. Like, what are some detriments of that? And I guess, how can we avoid that? So I believe in measure, right? I believe in finding the measure, meaning being all in on an album and only that album, there's probably not a lot of measure there because there's there's a deficit in hearing other kinds of music or having other kinds of experiences with music. Attachment feels like, it feels heavy. There's actually a physical feeling. And how to avoid getting too attached to ideas and thoughts is just awareness that happens. You know, already knowing like, hey, there's a possibility I could be attached to something. Okay, there's a there's a possibility I might be hanging on to this opinion with my cold, dead hand, and I might not be able to see another point of view. That's okay. It's going to happen. Let me be aware of it if it does. You can't av- you can't avoid it. But what you can do is try to close the gap between the time a thought happens through the process of attachment to the reframing of your perspective, right? It's really the time. The longer you're in that attachment, right? So the point is to not spend so much time in the attachment and knowing that it happens is half the battle. The more you reduce the time that it takes to alleviate the attachment, the happier you'll be. Yeah, it's uh, it's like the simplest things are like the hardest to implement. Everybody wants the complicated answer they give themselves an excuse not to do it. Like, damn, you got to do all that. Sounds like it works, but that's hard. I'm not going to do it. But what you're saying is just simple stuff. Just pause, right? It's easy to do, but then at the same time, it's so difficult because your mind just wants to react, right? Constantly wants to react and, and go down these paths. So why is it that that we have such a reactive monkey mind? So because our minds want want to stay in that delicious complexity. It's delicious because it's a matrix of discontent and it keeps you safe. That's the ego's job is to keep you safe. And so it'll create all these sort of, oh, that's difficult. Oh, I don't know if I could do that. Oh, that sounds complicated. So that you don't go and do that new thing. And then it's so sophisticated because we now lead these very sophisticated, before it was like, Tiger will eat me. Run, but not anymore. We our the, our whole world has become so sophisticated. Well, guess what evolved to become just as sophisticated as the world we live in? Our ego. So our ego will continue to create complexity and problems so it can continue to try and solve them. It will create new problems because it wants to continue to solve those problems. Because if it's not doing that, then you're going to go off and do something that it thinks is new and unsafe and that it doesn't understand. And therefore it it will freak out and it doesn't want to be freak out. It's happier freaking out about the things that it knows. So that's why our minds are so reactive. 
everyone's got a re, a different re, like a different reaction they're reactive about. What triggers you is probably very different than what triggers me. But that doesn't mean that the triggers don't exist. Yeah, I like that. We just kind of have our own loops that they get kicked off and we have a something that sparks it. Yeah. We're talking about the ego and not wanting us to go into these new and weird situations. Uh, you talk a little bit about, I think kind of lines up well here about making decisions, right? So I guess that is that part of the ego's job to make decisions? And I guess we'll start there. The ego will present an interpretation of a situation and tell you there's a decision that needs to be made. And sometimes, and sometimes it will give input as to what that decision should be. It's never, never really the right input. It's never really, I mean, unless you're about to get hit by a bus, chances are the advice the ego is giving you about a decision that you need to make is like, it's like the best friend that loves you so much, but always gives you bad advice. Mm -hmm. Just love it, but maybe not follow it, <laughs> right? So decision-making comes from the reasoned mind. The, the reasoned mind is that is the mind that observes. It's the mind that is patient. It's the mind that deliberates. And the ego will tell you, well, you have a duty to do this. You have to do this because it's your duty, or you have to do this because we're scared, right? Or, you know, it'll give you all these reasons why you have to make this decision. But the only decision that is worth pursuing is that, that which comes from the reasoned mind, that which is wise. And there's all kinds of guidance on what is considered a wise decision. Can you share some of those tips uh, with the audience that, that could help us make those better decisions? My default is what is the good for all? Mm. What is the good for as many people as possible? You can't go wrong with that. You really can't. So, so if you are in a conundrum and, and you're really wrangling with what to do about something, think about the others that are going to be impacted by that decision and allow that to guide you. So that's, that's tip number one. You know, tip number two, really know the basis of your decisions. Really know, are you doing this because you're scared? Are you doing this because you feel like it's your duty. Like what, what is your real rationale for making, you know, that choice or that decision? And if it's coming from a place that doesn't feel, you know, grounded, then take more time. And that's tip number, that's tip number two, which leads to tip number three, which is take your time. It's okay to take your time with the, with the decision. It's important to weigh the consequences of what you're about to do. Uh, that's important. Absolutely agree. Yeah. So let's, uh, I want to get into the flow because I, I, I like this section you talked about in your book about getting into the real flow. So what is this? What is the real flow and how can we distinguish that from the from, from a fake flow or the fake flow? That's a thing. Well, so real flow is the process is rest and then you have an impulse and then you there's an action and then there's rest. So rest, impulse, action, rest. I don't know what fake flow is. I kind of made that up. Oh, okay. I, was, I was wondering, is there a fake flow so that to kind of distinguish from that real flow? Would the fake flow just be well, go, go, go? Perhaps, perhaps there might be a misunderstanding of flow mm -hmm. where people seem to think that flow only occurs when you're in action mm -hmm. and when you're in the moment and you're in the zone and 
you know, everything in your being and your intellect and your emotions and your physicality is operating at optimal level, right? That feeling of that zone. And what, but what I'm saying is actually flow is a more contextualized experience because that moment of the zone would not happen if there wasn't rest, if there wasn't an impulse, and if there wasn't rest after the, the that action. Flow is impacted the second you wake up in the morning. It exists throughout your day. It's not just in that one hour of like, holy crap, like I am killing it with this slide deck right now, right? That moment would not occur had you maybe not had a good, good night's sleep or had you not taken the time to really think about what you wanted to say. Like, so I, I don't think flow happens in a, in a vacuum by any stretch. Yeah. Cause I mean, for me, at least it feels like I always need to be in motion on the go, 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 go. And we talked about the importance of, of inaction uh, being just as important as, as action. But I guess if you were to, to just spell it out clearly for us here, why is it that this inaction is just as important as, as the action? Because it forces us to stop and think. And I feel that if you were to go back and look at like, let's say you had a project and it it didn't really go that great or things, you know, kind of, it didn't go great. (laughs) It didn't go well. And you start to take a look back nine times out of 10, the reason why it didn't go well was because there wasn't an attention paid to the means of that project, the means of the work versus the outcome of the work. And so action, a lot of times people perceive it as like, it's the outcome. But when there's attention paid to the process and the means and being deliberate and having attention to detail, the outcome will will happen in the way that it's going to happen and hopefully in a positive way. So inaction is important because it's it's a natural law. You're following the natural law of things because it's a, it's a very important component in all of that. It forces us to stop and think. Such an important thing. I think it's like the, just the theme of this this discussion has been the importance of just pausing, the importance of just taking a moment before getting dragged along by your impressions and your perceptions. Um, I think I'm going to title this episode "Pause." That's what I'll do. So you talked about how you were uh, working a lot in strategy and whatnot. So what has philosophy taught you about being a better strategist? I'd love to to learn a little bit about that. You know, I have to say, if I were to go back to strategy work, I would kill it. And I'll tell you why. Because philosophy has taught me so much about what actually a human insight is, what a universal truth really is. And that is the core of strategy work. The core of strategy work is to find that fundamental essential nature of that thing and then build the actions and the activities that support and enable the that essential nature of that thing. That's what strategy is. And I feel like, you know, a lot of strategists get involved or over-involved or over-measured in the activities around the thing and maybe might be fuzzy on the essential nature of that thing. And what philosophy has taught me, it has given me razor sharp 
ability to see and pick an insight like a needle out of a haystack. And so I think that philosophy is, is such a great study for strategists. Absolutely. Yeah, I find myself in this awkward position. Well, not necessarily awkward position at work, but you know, I'm I'm trained as a statistician, as a data scientist. That's the work that I, I do, and now I'm in a position where I have to help implement or at least plan out a data strategy for this large organization. And I'm like, I don't really know how to be strategic. Like that's uh, tough to do, but that's, I like that. Just getting to the essential truth of the thing and then figuring out all the activities that will support that. So when we're getting to this essential truth of the thing, was there like one or two questions where you ask yourself at the beginning of any strategic initiative? What's really happening here? What's, what is most important and what will be, what could possibly be the most ideal outcome that isn't about the bottom line, but is about what will be the most good. So what's the most important thing? What does the most good? And what's the essential, what's the essential nature of it? And I want to just go back once again, Harpreet, first words out of your mouth, where I don't know how to do strategy. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to do the strategy if you already automatically are entering into the strategic work thinking that you can't do strategy. Yeah, I guess I'll... You just don't have the experience of it. Yeah, that's right. Adopt a bit of a growth mindset that I haven't done strategy I, I think, yet. I think there's another journal entry there. So immediately, yes. so again, think about what what was it that was telling you that you don't that you don't know how to do strategy. I could tell you right now it was your it was your circular thinking. It was your ego because mm-hmm. your ego is like oh, we've never done strategy before. Deer in headlights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not good at it, so don't do it. It's going to be terrible, right? Because this new thing is in your life. Your ego freaked out and mm-hmm. told you a story about yourself that isn't true. So to get kicked out of this kind of circular thinking loop around me feeling like I don't know how to do strategy, it's just, is it as simple as like the the growth mindset thing where I'm like, okay, I don't know how to do strategy yet, but it can be learned if I, if I put yeah. a little bit of effort. Or here's an even simpler, here's an even simpler way to look at it. I don't know how to do strategy. All right. Three, all right. I don't know how to do strategy. Laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, have have a sense of humor about it. Like, all right, well, we're gonna figure this out. I don't know how to do it, but we're gonna figure this out. Yeah, that's the that's the philosophical approach. Because the thing is, I, and and I, don't get me wrong, I love growth mindset stuff, and but the growth mindset stuff is is there's something even more fundamental that you need to be doing, which is accepting the fact that you don't know something. Socrates said, "I know that I know not, and that's what makes me a wise man." Mm-hmm. So right now you are not accepting the fact that you don't know something. And until you can accept that fact with, you know, delight and humor and curiosity and, you know, a little bit of like, oh, that's all right. And a little bit of acceptance, that growth mindset stuff is going to basically put a layer on top of something that isn't resolved and you are just going to be running into trouble. A lot of good actionable advice for me in this episode. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, that's, that's true. Like, I mean, you know, I forgot to tell you, I like to give unsolicited advice. So that, I appreciate you letting me do that. No, absolutely. I appreciate it. And, and, I I like that. Like just approach the challenge with a cheerful spirit, right? Because yes, it's a challenge, but the challenge is the way kind of forward, like to quote Marcus Aurelius there, right? I think that's quote everyone knows the the impediment to action advances action. Mm -hmm. What stands in the way becomes the way. So 
my lack of knowledge is standing in the way, but it's also going to be the way that I figure out what I need to do as long as I'm accepting it and approaching this daunting task. Little, little, little slip there, right? I should be approaching this opportunity with a cheerful spirit as the opportunity right. to learn and grow and add new skills to my set. Exactly. And again, just to put like a finer point on it, the obstacle is that you think there's an obstacle. Mm-hmm. That's the real obstacle. It's not that it's not just that you don't know. It's it's the fact that you think that you should know. That's the real obstacle. That mm, think that I should know instead of thinking that I, I can figure it out. I guess these subtle subtle shifts in, in thinking, right? Like approaching a task, not being able to know how to do it, thinking that I should be able to know how to do it, but really it should be approaching a task that I have not yet had an opportunity to do. And mm-hmm. then telling myself that, well, first of all, now I'm given an opportunity to do it. And in the actual doing of the thing, I'm going to learn, right? So awesome. Yeah. Let that sit with me this evening. Thank you very much for that. I know we're, we're running up on time here. We'll, we'll wrap up with the last formal question. Actually, let's do one more question for the last formal question. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think might know the answer to this, but let's, let's, let's uh, ask it anyways. So is wisdom a trait that can be cultivated? So, so remember wisdom is innate. So being wise is innate. Acting wise is a skill. So the trait to actually be cultivated is acting wisely. You are already wise. So there's nothing to cultivate there. Mm -hmm. What needs to be cultivated is the act of being wise. And where can we cultivate this act of being wise? Everywhere that we are? Do we do it alone by ourselves? Is it interacting with other people? How, how can we how can we do that? Every day presents us with opportunities. Every, every minute presents us with opportunities. We just did it twice on this podcast, mm-hmm. in this interview. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to do anything. We just need to see what's in front of us and guarantee you walk out of your apartment, you will see a million ways to look at the world you know, either differently or your place in it or, you know, something, some situation arises and you're like, okay, how can, how can I be wiser here in this moment? You could be completely alone. It's everywhere. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much. So we'll we'll get to the last formal question. Then we'll jump into our random round. And that is, it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? I, you know, I, I just, I want to be remembered for helping people really. I know that's sort of like the, the beauty pageant. (laughs) kind of answer, but I really, really genuinely want to be known for, you know, helping people and, and helping them gain a better knowledge of self, helping them to connect to who they really are. That's what I want to be known for. Well, I can tell you, you've definitely helped me today. And in the course of reading your book, you've definitely helped me as well. I encourage everyone to check it out. Wise Up at Work. Where can, where can they get this book? So it's on Amazon. So Wise Up at Work is, uh, you can find it on Amazon. Awesome. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Um, so yeah, let's let's do some just fun random round questions. What do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will be about? And when will that happen? It's going to be a cat. I don't know, maybe two years. Awesome. I, I mean, I don't, I mean, a trillion is a lot of people. It is. Yeah. Yeah. For reference, the um, last time I checked, it was Baby Shark with like almost 9 billion, I think, views. But I ask this question to a lot of people just because I just wisdom of the crowds thing. It's I want to fun. See how, yeah, it's fun. It's going to be a cat. It, it, a lot of people say cat. 
It's the cat yeah. video. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking to be YouTube famous, go buy a cat and start recording the cat. What do you think, in your opinion, what do you think most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? I've been called a house on fire. And I think that's pretty apt, actually. <laughs> a house on fire. Break that down. And why is that app? That's I look at, I take it as like super energetic and positive and, mm. you know, sassy and feisty and like bright and warm. And, you know, I, I don't look at it as destructive. Oh, I look okay. at it as like, you know, I don't know. That's Hopefully there aren't any listeners out there who have had their house burned down. And if so, I apologize. You know, I, I'm not <laughs> trying to make a positive analogy out of your drama. But yeah, somebody called me a house on fire and I actually really liked it. Yeah, like the, it's just all about the perception of how you how you choose to take it. I think who was it was it, it might have been Epic Teeters who says something like, um, if, if you choose to be or might have been Marcus Aurelius, choose to be harmed and you will be harmed. Choose not to be harmed and you won't be harmed. Right. Yeah, so that's yeah. So what are you currently reading? I am reading Plato's Lemonade Stand by Tom Morris. Tom Morris, he's he's definitely, I just think he's phenomenal. He's a retired philosophy professor who is just such an incredible writer. And he's just the most positive, lovely, lovely human being. And I adore, I adore Tom Morris. And so he wrote this book called Plato's Lemonade Stand. It's fun. Definitely check that out. Like the first image that comes to my mind is like, one of those stands where you come up and pay five cents to give it, you get a piece of advice type of thing, like from the, from like the Snoopy show or whatever it was. Is that kind of what it's like there? Well, the cover certainly looks like that, but oh. yeah, it's really about making Plato accessible. And it's just one of those books of like, hey, like here are some ideas around philosophy and and he just is such a good writer, makes it so accessible. And I appreciate that about him. Yeah, definitely check that one out. I picked up one recently. Um, it's an older book. It's called The Cartoon Guide to Philosophy. And I uh, can't read the name from here, but that yeah, you, you might enjoy that. If you type that in, you'll be able to easily find that. The Cartoon Guide to Philosophy. Um, it's a bunch of comics. And, and yeah, it's cool. So what song do you have on repeat? Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. That song just takes me back to like the 80s and, you know, to the soul of a heartbroken teenager, yes, which I was got several times. Vibes. Yeah, it definitely has those nostalgic vibes. It's a, it's a good track. So now we're going to open up the random question generator. All right. First question we have, what languages do you speak? I speak English, a little bit of Italian, a little bit of Hebrew, actually. Very little. Um, and a little bit of Greek. Nice. What's the story behind one of your scars? Oh, yeah. I've got these scars on my arm. I wish I had I wish I had a more badass story be behind these, but we have an oven that's like just at a really bad angle. And I've burned my arm like mm. several times. I mean, I, you know, I look like like I should be working a grill, mm. like in a restaurant. But yeah, oven burns. Pancakes or waffles? Ooh, waffles. To the last one here. What's your favorite candy? Chocolate. Nice. And how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? I'm on LinkedIn. So the thing is my name, my first name doesn't have an H in it. So my first name is C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A. My last name is D-I-N-A capital G-I-A-C-O-M-O. -O. So I'm on LinkedIn 
And you can also go to my website, christinadegiacomo.com, and you can learn more about me there. And you can also sign up to get a free excerpt of Wise Up at Work. You can check that out. I'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes and spell your name correctly. So, Christina, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. Really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much. This was really great. And have a great day, everybody. 